0: This Podcast is for entertainment, education, and information purposes only, and the topics discussed should not be used solely to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any diseases or conditions. For the more that views, and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of the host and should not be interpreted as official policy or position of any entity. Aside from possibly cash-like, moral, and affiliate outreach programs, if indeed there are any. In fact, there are none. Pretty much, we are responsible. If you screw up. You should always do your own homework and let us know when we're ready.
1: Welcome back to the Curbsiders. Hi. Hi, Stuart. <laughs> well, I'd like to tell people this is this is an internal medicine podcast, and we use expert interviews to bring you clinical pearls and practice-changing knowledge. For your brain hole. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Dr. Matthew Watto, here with my co-host, Dr. Stuart Kent Brigham. Well, hello, how are you doing? <laughs> It's the family. That's much that's much better than the apathetic hello you gave me a couple minutes ago.
2: Hated that more than almost anything (laughs) you've ever done before. I found (laughs) it deeply upsetting.
1: And that is, of course, the sweet sounds of Dr. Paul Nelson Williams.
0: (laughs) With his wonderful kids.
1: And with us is is our curbsiders correspondent, Doctor Neela Bajandas. Neela, great to have you.
3: Great to be here.
1: Nila Nila is an assistant professor of pharmacy practice at Temple University, and we are so glad to have her here because uh, she is going to help us figure out this antibiotic mess when we talk about pneumonia. Isn't that right, Nila? 100%. Okay. (laughs) Did you want to tell the audience, uh, give them like a one-liner about yourself?
3: Sure. Um, So I am a 30-plus-year-old female, wife and mother of a beautiful and feisty two-year-old daughter, a diehard NFL or No Fun League football fan, um, (laughs) and clinical pharmacist by day who has practiced uh, as a community pharmacist critical care, pharmacist and um, and an inpatient pharmacist, and a boxer by night.
1: (laughs) So you can beat all of us up pretty easily, I'm assuming, by that description.
3: Um, except for Bob
1: Centaur (laughs) yeah except for except for Bob Centaur who you will find out is a formidable athlete well this episode is on community acquired pneumonia our guest on this show is Dr. Robert Centaur he is a professor emeritus at the University of Alabama in Birmingham and the chair emeritus of the Board of Regents for the ACP he is a retired dean now working part-time at Huntsville, at both Huntsville and the VA in Alabama. But uh, as he was telling me, it sounds like he's actually working more than a normal full-time job, at least by my calculation. So I don't, Really consider retired, but his passion is clinical education, focusing on clinical reasoning and the thought process in internal medicine. He has co-authored several clinical reasoning vignettes in NEJM, JGIM, JHM, and the American Journal of Medical Sciences. He has won multiple teaching awards at UAB, culminating in the Ellen Gregg Ingalls UAB National Alumni Society Award for Lifetime Achievement in Teaching in 2016. In 2017, he won the Glazer Award from the SGIM. The Robert J. Glazer Award recognizes outstanding contributions to research, education, leadership, and mentoring in generalism in medicine and is presented at the SGIM annual meeting as a feature of a plenary session. Needless to say, we are... Quite lucky to have met Dr. Robert Centaur and have him as a third time returning guest on the show. I think you all are going to really enjoy this. And uh, that's all I have to say. Stuart?
0: Don't hold your breath.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Okay. I won't. This is the Curbsiders here with Dr. Robert Centaur, or as he's allowing us to call him tonight, Bob, <laughs> since he tells me we're colleagues, but I still, you know, feel a little uncomfortable. But Bob, great to have you back.
4: It's wonderful to be back.
1: Yes, and we we really like this topic idea you had uh, to do pneumonia and specifically kind of your angle on it. We're going to be talking all about that. But, uh, you know, this is the show, The Curbsiders. We always have to have some nonsense up front here. So let's do some, let's do some picks of the week. Bob, do you have a pick of the week ready for us?
4: Yeah, I actually do. I thought about this a lot. Um, I'm obsessed with exercise uh, for the last several years. And there's a particular exercise that I do called Orange Theory Fitness. Um, It's a group exercise that, takes an hour. It's about half cardiovascular and ha- half weight training. I go four or five times a week. And I was um, telling Matt earlier that I often go in the morning before I go to work, which I never did in my life. But all of a sudden, I'm really excited about it. But if anybody has, hasn't has tried and is looking for an interesting, uh, challenging uh, group workout, Orange Theory Fitness is a wonderful thing.
1: Is that a national chain? I haven't heard of It is.
4: It's a national chain over 700 places, and I actually have worked out in a number of different cities, including the city where Cash Lack Memorial is. <laughs> Excellent.
0: <laughs> okay. Seeing a lot of yellow hues and yellow, or not yellow, but orange hues and orange lights in here.
4: Are there we- are orange lights. There are orange lights. Uh, absolutely, and uh, you're trying to get to the orange zone, which is it's uh, use a heart rate monitor and to okay it's it's high intensity interval training and you're trying to spend at least 12 minutes in the orange zone which is a heart rate of 84 to 91% of your maximum heart rate. Excellent.
1: Okay. I am I'm a huge fan of working out in the morning. I probably do it 3 sometimes 4 days a week if I'm if I'm having a good week, but it is it it is a good way to start your day. I feel like I'm like there's a there's this guy Jocko Willink who has a uh, podcast that I listen to sometimes, and he is a like ex Navy SEAL, and he's like, what I like wake working out in the morning because you're up before your enemy getting ready for the day." And that's that's <laughs> so that's what I tell myself. I don't know who my enemy is, maybe uh, diabetes or something, but anyway, yeah, <laughs> I I do like working out. In diabetes the never sleeps. <laughs> Paul, what's your pick of the week?
2: So glad you asked, Watto. I have a movie, finally. You know, I had a fair dry spell where I didn't like anything that I watched as <laughs> part of my, my fruitless quest, but I, I finally found one that I really enjoyed a lot. I'm going to recommend the movie Good Time, which is a 2017 crime drama directed by the Safdie brothers and actually starring Robert Pattinson, whom I had not thought much of up until this point. And it's basically this heist movie where these two brothers are robbing a bank and one of them gets picked up by the police and then the rest of the movie is the other brother trying to get him out of police custody it's it's first of all i've never seen robert pattinson be better it's an amazingly nuanced uh, and interesting performance the whole thing's fast-paced and sort of urgent kind of right in your face it's interesting because there's no character arc usually you know you watch a movie and you meet a character they develop over time and then they're a different person in the end I'm like no this is this <laughs> stuff just happens and the movie's over um but while stuff's happening it is you're just kind of having palpitations the entire time, and it's it's just really beautifully shot, great soundtrack, great acting. So I would recommend the Softie Brother movie, Good Time, which uh, just came out this year and is available for streaming right now. So, Paul,
0: I distinctly remember you saying that you're going to watch one movie a day or something like that <laughs> at the beginning of the year.
2: Okay. How how far did you go? I'm, I feel like I'm up to, I don't know, like 420 maybe. <laughs> okay, sure. So
1: ahead of schedule...
2: Yeah, yeah, well I had a schedule. I, so I, I started there by stacking up and doing like ten a day, and now I sort of slowed down. No, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna crack 200 pretty easily, but I'm not gonna come anywhere near close to my goal. But I still, you know, the the reward is the friends I made along the way. So <laughs> excellent,
1: Neela. Did you want to give a quick pick of the week for your first time on the show?
3: Sure. Um, I guess like my my pick of the week, um, which you've already. St- I've heard on the, on your show is the LexiComp app. Um, that's actually the pharmacist secret weapon, but I wanted, what I wanted to really discuss. So um, are the embedded clinical tools in it. And it's kind of like a one-stop shop. Um, a great component of it is the IV compatibility um, component of it. So it's linked to Tristle's IV compatibility. So whenever like nurses are asking me about compatibility, I, I, Just that's the first place that I go and I'm able to answer all their questions. Um, And another part that I love is the drug identification tool. So then you can obviously like um, type in the shape, the color um, of your tablets, um, any inscriptions on it, and it'll tell you what medication it is. Another component I like is it does incorporate um, a patient education um, handout sheet for your patients that you can actually change the font size, which I find pretty useful versus the drug monograph that they get at the pharmacy, which is very small and daunting. Um, And then there's a charts and special topics component to it. So you can check like, you know, um, corticosteroid systemic equivalences or benzodiazepine comparison charts, looking at like all different pharmacology aspects of it. But my favorite component of it. And is if I, could, if I could be Facebook friends with this, I would, is the drug <laughs> interaction tool component of it. And this is where I perform a drug interaction analysis. And this is where whenever I make a recommendation, I always check to make sure that there's no drug interactions, specifically uh, QTC prolonging medications, which we're going to talk about later today.
1: Excellent. Awesome.
0: And my pick of the week is equally effective and useful, it's a blog post by Dr. Paul Sachs. It's how to figure out the length of antibiotic therapy. So, I just want to give you the first and sixth rule. The first rule is choose a multiple of five fingers of the hand or seven days of the week. And then rule number six, does the infection involve a bone or a heart valve? Four weeks at least, often six weeks. Note, five weeks is not an option. Here, the fives and sevens cancel each other out and chaos ensues.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's, you got to read the whole article. It's, it's brilliantly written and timeless. And we're going to have him on the show here in the future. Yes. Which we're very excited about. Bob, I'd like to start with a case from Cashlack Memorial, This is a 38-year-old male. This is actually a a real case I saw at Cash Slightly changed uh, for HIPAA purposes, of course. And this was a 38-year-old male. He was an active smoker, bipolar disorder. He's taking olanzapine, 20 milligrams, citalopram, 40 milligrams. He's he's obese. BMI is in the 30s, uh, low 30s. He has hypertension, taking some meds for that, and he's coming to the ED. He says he has seven days of cough that's been progressive. He has a little bit of sputum production, short of breath was exertion. He's wheezing, and I get called by the ED to evaluate him for admission. Uh, ED doc tells me he thinks the guy probably has pneumonia. Hmm.
4: Yeah, so uh, you haven't told me anything that makes me think it really is pneumonia yet.
1: Yeah.
4: <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, but this is not surprising. Uh, I often tell the students and house staff that uh, being called from the emergency department for the diagnosis of community-acquired pneumonia is a chance for us to think. <laughs> yeah, um, and it's, and I'd love to tell the story of why I think that's true.
0: I'd sure. I'd love to hear that story. All right, campfire stories with Bob. Let's hear it.
4: <laughs> so, community-acquired pneumonia. Um, was not a term back in the 70s when I was training. And then sometime in the 80s, there was a big study, and we'll, which we'll probably talk about in a little while, the study that developed the Pneumonia Severity Index, and it was a study of community-acquired pneumonia. So they sort of lumped all these different uh, pneumonias that people show up with, and we can talk about the bacteria here in a minute, uh, and call that community-acquired pneumonia. And then they started, Medicare started collecting data, and and somebody did a retrospective study and found out that patients with a discharge diagnosis with community-acquired pneumonia who got their antibiotics within four hours of the time they hit the ER had better outcomes than the ones who didn't. Mm -hmm. In 2002, the IDSA had a guideline on community-acquired pneumonia that said that patients should get antibiotics within four hours. So now they put in this four-hour rule, and uh, then a a series of articles came out about the overuse of antibiotics for non-community-acquired pneumonia. And this this is a basic principle of diagnostic testing, and the clinical call of community-acquired pneumonia is a diagnostic test. If you want to improve the sensitivity, which is what the hospitals were telling the emergency departments, you have to improve your sensitivity. You can't do that without decreasing your specificity. So, or in other words, there are a lot of false positives. Right. And, um, uh, I've circulated to, to this, uh, august group, uh, <laughs> a wonderful article from 2008 by Welker that yeah. showed, uh, a very high misdiagnosis rate and, uh, I was talking to Stuart. Maybe Stuart, you could tell them some of the highlights of the misdiagnosis yeah. of community acquired pneumonia. I mean,
0: it, the, the, this article is is it's it really opened my eyes here. So when they were using an eight hour cutoff for antibiotic timing, it was twenty five percent misdiagnosis, which in its in it in and of itself is pretty significant. But yet when they when it moved from from eight hours to four hours, it was a thirty three percent misdiagnosis rate for community acquired pneumonia, and that's just that to me seems a little unacceptable and and when you look at some of the diagnoses that were misdiagnosed some of these are just they're not even they're, they're not even any lung complaints you have a urinary tract infection you've got constipation 1.2 1.4% of misdiagnosed patients constipation 3.4% were urinary tract infection this is just unacceptable
4: this continues to be a problem people get labeled incorrectly and I don't want to blame the emergency departments because they're under right. a lot of pressure. So emergency department physicians have to make quick decisions. They have they have to put a label on a patient in order to admit them. They can't say cough and fever, or they can't say right. uh, cough and wheezing. They actually have to put a label, otherwise insurance won't allow them to admit the patient. Right. So what I tell my house staff and students, if the patient comes with, with a label of community-acquired pneumonia, Let's assume at first that it's not that, and then see if we can prove to ourselves that it really is that. We have a lot more time to make that decision than the emergency department does, um, but we just can't believe that diagnosis, either from a primary care physician sending the patient in or from the emergency department.
2: Right. Well, it seems to me part of the issue is actually defining what we're calling pneumonia. So I think one of the reasons that you... You circulated that article to us was because that's it's that's the definition of pneumonia that you or community acquired pneumonia I should say that, that you use so right. it's um, like I wonder if you wouldn't mind sort of just reviewing your criteria for what actually constitutes pneumonia because I feel like some of the the misdiagnoses or overdiagnoses just because a criteria was used that was not as stringent as the one that you're referring to
4: right and and, and this is not exactly what I use myself but it's close enough that I, what I'm going to do is go over the the um, criteria that were used for the Welker study. So uh, the symptoms would be at least two of cough, dyspnea, pleuritic chest pain, tachypnea, and that would be respirations of greater than 30, uh, hypoxia with uh, a decreased pulse ox, um, uh, auscultatory findings uh, of pneumonia, rouse, uh, dullness to percussion, bronchial breath sounds, agophany. So some clinical presentation, that's, mm-hmm. that's one of the three things. Another would be uh, the body's response. So febrile uh, to temperature of greater than 38 degrees um an elevated white count, uh, a left shift. Uh, you'd expect to have at least one of those things. And... Mm-hmm a compatible chest X-ray, usually a new or increasing infiltrate. The other thing that I always think about if if I want it to really be community-acquired pneumonia is it's a relatively short duration, two to three days, often starts with an upper respiratory tract infection, and they come in pretty soon after they got sick. Uh, What's not community-acquired pneumonia is the person who goes to urgent care. uh, They think they have community-acquired pneumonia. They give them a ZPAC. They come back uh, a week later with the same symptoms, and so they get retreated for community acquired pneumonia with another <laughs> antibiotic. Right. Uh, at that point, it's not community acquired pneumonia; it's something else, and we don't know what it is. Um, and so, if if they don't fit into this, I start asking myself, could it be something else? And it could right. be heart failure. It could be uh, tuberculosis. I've seen uh, granulomatosis with the polyangiitis, and I've seen Nothing. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> <laughs>
0: the, the The other thing from the from the uh, the Welker article here, so it has to meet all three criteria: so radiographic evidence, systemic evidence, and se- s- the symptoms. One of the concerns that that I always have is is the sensitivity itself of the initial chest X ray. There was an article from two thousand nine. It was a, a Hageman et al. It, uh, title of it is "Admission Chest Radiograph Lacks Sensitivity in the Diagnosis of Acquired Pneumonia," and in this this one one center here, uh, 21% of patients who had the discharge diagnosis of pneumonia lacked an infiltrate. And of the patients that lacked an infiltrate, over half of them had an infiltrate that developed within 48 hours. What do you think about relying on imaging criteria for the diagnosis of community-acquired pneumonia?
4: That, it's a great point, and we knew that back in the 70s. Uh, so back when I was an intern and resident, uh, if the patient had a really classic presentation for community-acquired pneumonia, we, and we thought it was usually pneumococcal mm-hmm. back then, uh, and the chest X-ray was okay, we say, let's take another chest X-ray tomorrow. It'll blossom out. I don't know what blossom out means, but <laughs> the next day, the chest X-ray would be abnormal.
1: Bob, you were saying about portable films. Can you just?
4: Yeah. So uh, an AP film is less standardized and harder to read. Most radiologists will tell you that that compared to good PA PA and lateral is a substandard film. And it's harder to see an infiltrate, especially if you don't have a lateral, because sometimes you can only see the infiltrate on lateral. So if I I think the patient has pneumonia clinically and you can't see it on the portable, I'll get a good PA and lateral the next day if at all possible. Now I'm talking about patients who are admitted to the ward service, not Mm -hmm. someone who needs to be in the ICU. And my guess is the people who need to be in the ICU are much more likely to have a a positive portable film also. I even sometimes will go to uh, chest CT if I'm really confused and the patient has the clinical things that we talked about that look like pneumonia, but that's sort of a port of last resort.
0: I've definitely seen the uh, ERs run to to chest CT. Um, Real quick there, there, Matt. So I just wanted to point out that in the Welker article, it, it does seem to highlight that as well. So when you look at the predefined criteria for, for admission diagnosis of pneumonia, less than 50%. And this is irrespective of whether or not the uh, cutoff to admission or to antibiotic uh, timing was four or eight hours. It was always less than 50%. And it, there was really a, a a poor correlation with the diagnosis of uh, pneumonia at discharge versus the diagnosis of pneumonia at, at admission. So, going by those uh, uh the predefined criteria seems to be um fairly insensitive for the diagnosis of pneumonia.
1: Well, what I wanted to say uh, just kind of part of our the whole blossoming thing, I did look in the literature trying to find this like does pneumonia really blossom like if you hydrate a patient up? There was some studies that lo- there was a retrospective study I found that looked back and it seemed like mm. if there was pretty good evidence that the patient had volume, was volume depleted. And like you said, if the clinical syndrome in the picture l- otherwise seemed like a pneumonia, then there, there, there might be some benefit in repeating the chest x-ray. You might see something, especially if the patient was very volume down when they came into the hospital.
4: One of the the things that I do to discuss this with the house staff and students is the concept of illness script and problem representation. Right. Um, There's a wonderful article uh, by Judith Bowen in the New England Journal of Medicine, I think it's like 2006 approximately, um, where she introduced this. And this is one of the most important things I learned about teaching. So I'm going to talk about teaching about pneumonia now. The illness script is what we expect. That's what we just talked about. What we expect in someone who has community-acquired pneumonia. The problem representation is the brief summary of what's wrong with the patient. So this is a 38-year-old active smoking man who has scant sputum production, dyspnea exertion, wheezing. I haven't heard anything about fever. I haven't heard anything about a white count. And I haven't heard anything about a chest x-ray. So I don't have enough information yet to know whether or not that patient has community-acquired pneumonia because I can't match up his problem representation mm-hmm. against the illness script that I expect. And if they don't match up, I have to consider other diagnoses. That's, that's when I have to go to uh, analytic thinking and differential diagnosis. If it matches up perfectly, uh, if, it, if it quacks like a duck and it, and it looks like a duck, it's probably a duck.
1: Uh-huh. i think part of the problem with community acquired pneumonia is and pneumonia in general in the lay public if someone gets a really bad cold they they call it a pneumonia and uh, i'll often hear this from family members oh i just got over a pneumonia and i'll say oh did did did, did you have a chest x-ray Were you admitted to the hospital yeah. and they'll say no no i just you know the doctor gave me a z-pack and they didn't they did there was no diagnostic testing, just kind of they someone took a history and gave them a Z pack and I think that a lot of people are entering medical school with that kind of understanding that that's what a pneumonia is and i, I think that's even among doctors, like if they're not really t- trained well about this, then right. people just are still a little confused about like what exactly is it and And when you read the literature the the definition varies slightly from source to source
2: well, that's what I like about the smoker article. It, well, one of the many things I like about it is the fact that, well, there was no good definition, so we had to make one up. It was <laughs> <laughs> really the rationale for actually having a, a standard definition in the first place. I think it's based on FDA trials and their criteria, um, but I, I thought it was fascinating that one of my favorite things about medicines we're still just trying to figure out fundamental stuff that we should have figured out probably centuries ago, <laughs> Yeah, um, like a definition of pneumonia or what a target blood pressure should be.
1: <laughs> exactly.
2: Part of it's because
4: pneumonia is a syndrome and not a disease. Right. Pneumococcal pneumonia is a disease. Legionnaire's pneumonia is a disease. But we lump those t- together along with mycoplasma and chlamydia and H flu and more Xella as acquired pneumonia. Right. And sometimes we even let staff sneak in there somehow. <laughs>
1: Bob, I want to talk a little bit uh, more. What would be the next steps of this case? Let's say we're in the emergency department. What what further testing are we going to do to try to figure out where this patient needs to go and does this patient really have pneumonia or not?
4: Right. So we we have time to take a more careful history than they than they have time to do in the emergency department. So we need to know whether or not he's had any fever, particularly... If it's pneumococcal pneumonia, if you go back and read the classic literature from before they had X-rays, they they would have the crisis. They'd have a drenching sweat, and they'd have rigors, and that's the bacteremic period. And they usually only have one if it's pneumococcal pneumonia. I once had pneumococcal pneumonia, and I actually did have that crisis. I woke up in the middle of the night, drenched, and and shaking, and teeth chattering. Um, I had one segment, pneumonia. I saw the chest x-ray the next day. So I'd get the history about fever. Um, the scan sputum production uh, really turns me away from it. And then I need to examine the patient and see if I can hear rales, see, see see if I can uh, uh, see gophony or tactile fremitus. I can't do that a lot, but sometimes you do, and sometimes that really helps you on the clinical exam. Um, but I think a careful history and also, have they ever had this before? Is this just uh, a smoker's cough? I mean, we know the guy's a smoker, and uh, we, you haven't told me how long he's been smoking. He's been smoking long enough to have early COPD. Uh, does he have any history of asthma? He could even be coughing from his lisinopril, for all I know. <laughs> uh, so uh, I, I need a lot of information. But this is not going to be enough. I'm also going to have to do lab testing and imaging.
1: Okay, let's say he smoked for 20 years, and let's make it a little more. Do you want to change the case a little bit to make it more convincing for pneumonia? He has copious, <laughs> copious sputum production, and right. uh, purulent, and, he thinks, and he's had some subjective fevers at home.
4: Right. So, so now I want to see how his body's responding. So I do want to get a white count. And I want to look at a chest x-ray. And it, what I would love to do is send them for good PA and lateral because it, you really will pick up a lot more pneumonia than you will on an a, a portable AP.
1: Reading about pneumonia, a lot of the big, one of the big decision points, especially coming out of the ER, is who goes home and who gets to stay. And we, we wanted to talk about the, the, some of the scoring systems that exist and, and what your recommendations are.
4: Right. So I have to admit I'm very biased because uh, the people who developed the pneumonia severity index are good friends of mine. <laughs> so we'll get the bias out of the way. Michael Fine, uh, who is the, the main author, did, has done huge studies, large numbers of patients. Uh, but uh, I've seen at least one comparison of the pneumonia severity index with the CURB-65. How staff and most attendings tend to like CURB-65 because they can remember it. For the <laughs> exactly. pneumonia severity index, you have to pull out some some medicine calculator. Now, that used to be a real pain in the neck, but everybody's carrying a smartphone on rounds, and you can pull it up and, and, and uh, calculate it. What both of these do, and I think the pneumonia severity index is a little bit better, is it tells you people at very low risk of mortality and people at higher risk of mortality. And the people at highest risk of mortality, you have to start seriously thinking about whether or not they need to be in an ICU. The people with lowest risk for mortality, and that has to do with age and uh, the lack of um, comorbid conditions, et cetera. Usually can be treated as outpatients if they don't have social problems that are going to make that very difficult. So here at Cashlack, <laughs> we often will have to admit them. Um, whereas if you're in a suburban practice, uh, you may might much more easily will be able to send them home. Um, and both the new IDSA guidelines, and I actually recently had a conversation with Michael Fine about this, says these. But both the pneumonia, pneumonia severity index and the CURB sixty five are very good at stratifying people, but you have to take into consideration the patient and not just the number.
1: Mm-hmm. And the and the pneumonia severity index does that. Is that what you are saying? That does that, but the CURB sixty five doesn't take into account the whole patient.
4: No, neither one of them. Neither one of them takes into account the social situation. Okay. So, if let, let's say you have a seventy five. Your old man who lives by himself and doesn't have any family around, and you're going to send him home, or a homeless patient, uh, and they, ha- they have no place to go, you might watch them for a day or two, even though they have a low risk. The fact that this, that this patient is bipolar, I don't know if his, if his uh, bipolar disorder is uh, under control, but if it's not under control, then you might admit him just to make sure that he's going to get his antibiotics for a few days. Right.
1: And, and when you're talking about the cutoffs, I think the classic cutoffs for the pneumonia severity index score one to three, that's less severe, those patients can go home and score for the CURB 65 if it's less than two. So if it's a score of a zero or one, then those patients probably can be treated as outpatients as long as they have the social, social factors that promote them doing okay without, without your supervision.
4: Right. If, if you're certain that they'll be able to take their antibiotics and that they'll stay hydrated, etc. Um, you really can't be criticized for admitting any of those patients, but this does give you permission. And the way I use it is I'll often do this the next day. If the patient looks pretty good, I'll calculate this just as another piece of support for saying, I think I can send them home, mm-hmm. especially if the patient wants to go home. Mm-hmm. Um if there are three or four, uh, th- then I'm, I'm really not comfortable sending them home until they start improving. Right.
1: And for the audience, to, to calculate a pneumonia severity index, one of the limitations I think would be you need to get an ABG because uh, they, right. they, they, they do take into account the pH. So I guess technically you could get a VBG and you know, kind of rough it that way, but you need a, B, a basic metabolic panel, a CBC, you need pulse ox and a chest X-ray, so most of those you're probably going to have. The ABG is the one that, and then you need some of the other information about the patient. But the, but the as far as testing that you need to do, so it's not it's not that bad.
4: If the patient looks pretty good, you can just assume that the that the blood gas is right. not that abnormal.
1: There you go, and mm-hmm. and, yeah.
4: and that's that's our clinical experience because. By the time you finish residency, if you haven't seen 50 community-acquired pneumonias, you're in the wrong program.
1: (laughs) We do. So I'm not sure if anyone else had a chance to look into this a little bit. Um, before we get to the antibiotic thing, I just wanted to talk about procalcitonin because it's sort of part of a, it can be used as a diagnostic, part of your diagnostic information. And, and also when you're using antibiotics, it's going to play in there. And procalcitonin is this, it's a calcitonin gene-related product that is upregulated in bacterial infections, but not viral infections. And when you're treating somebody with antibiotics, for a bacterial infection and they're getting better, procalcitonin drops pretty rapidly. And there's been a bunch of studies and meta-analysis, systematic reviews and meta-analyses about this. And the most recent one that got a lot of publicity was in Lanson Infectious Disease just a couple months ago, where they basically showed for people with uh, respiratory Acute respiratory tract infections, most of who had lower respiratory tract infections, had a slight decrease in 30 day mortality. but the big things were they had a decrease in antibiotic exposure, um, which is what everyone was excited about, a decrease in um, anti you know antibiotic side effects. And so people are now kind of interested in that and basically procalcitonin if the if the number if the patient's admitted to an ICU or they're on a ventilator they say if the number is less than 0.5 micrograms per liter you probably don't need to start antibiotics and for your sort of more ambulatory patients or patients just in the ER that aren't quite so sick a score of less than 0.25 you can probably avoid antibiotics but the yeah. sensitivity, specificity, not great. So, I, Stuart, have you, do you have experience using this?
0: Yeah. So, I actually use procalcitonin pretty frequently on the inpatient side. And I just want to point out that it's actually been validated for um, as cost-effective for outpatient management for acute respiratory tract infections in adults as well. So, if you actually look at the cost of antibiotic therapy and you compare that to the cost of the, the uh, procalcitonin and the ability to accurately diag- diagnose bacterial infections— as uh one of the, the the cutoffs it's actually cost effective as
1: well yeah and it was it was fda approved just earlier this year
4: yeah it, it this is interesting we we don't have it at the community hospital um that i work in at times and uh i discussed it with the head of infectious diseases there and he is still a skeptic i then mm-hmm. talked to the people at uab Uh, And I talked to two different infectious disease people, one of whom was a skeptic and one of whom was an enthusiast. So apparently in the infectious disease community, this is still uh, something that's under debate.
1: I will say that the uh, the Lancet infectious disease article was at least partially. They were all speakers for Th- Thermo Fisher, mm. who who makes the test, and uh, the, oh. but and it was at least the 2012 meta analysis was funded by that that group, mm. and then this one was funded sort of backdoor funded by it. It seemed to me, anyway, from looking at it. So. Maybe that's where some of the, you know, skepticism comes from. Yeah, it's
0: not ubiquitous. That's for sure.
1: I just like it. I think it can be. Uh, I think it can be a nice tool for the right patient. So if you have a patient, an outpatient, and they're relatively low risk, you can use that to avoid antibiotics. And in the hospital, you know, maybe it can be a clue to whether or not someone right. really has a bacterial infection that's serious and right. you, and you might be able to get stop antibiotics sooner is one of the other ways it's been used where you track you track the score every other day while people are on therapy and you might be able to stop them early
0: i think i think one of the limiting factors at least at one of the hospitals i've worked at is the turnaround time for procalcitonin so if it's going to take uh, at one point it was a send out and it took about a week, week and a half for it to come back and it was that's incredibly useless.
4: Yes. <laughs> <It> sounds <laughs> ideal. Well that's so I, was trying to, you, I will call you in one week. <laughs> I <laughs> yes, was trying I'll to get this hospital, which is pro- probably uh CashLack Junior uh, <laughs> to uh start doing uh, procalcitonin so that we could use it on site uh, it's still a send out and they're they're worried and then head of infectious disease is worried that once it's available, available it will be over ordered.
0: Kind of like chest X rays and CT scans.
4: You can compare it to a lot of other tests.
1: Tropon- <laughs> <Yeah>. Troponins, troponins, <laughs>
0: yes. His right toe hurts, but you got to admit it for chest pain rule out.
1: Neil, are you seeing this used in your institution for uh, for patients uh, getting antibiotics?
3: Um, We aren't, I know a lot of the physicians um, have been wanting to incorporate this, but it's a send out at our institution as well. Yeah, that makes
1: it useless. Yeah. Yeah. I know there's I think there's even a point of care version available for primary care. Okay. Well, it's, it's interesting. I think it's interesting. Definitely something to keep an eye on. And, uh, you know, if the specialists are fighting about it, then kind of maybe wait to let the dust settle the way that, <laughs> the way that we probably have to do with some other things. Uh, Neela, so antibiotic choice, how, how should we approach this? Um, and what, what's happening in the emergency department that you're seeing?
3: Um, so, I guess like looking at our patient, for example, um, he comes in with like bipolar disorder. Just to recap, um, on lantapine, um hypertension on lisinopril, hydrochlorothiazide, is an active smoker has had seven days of progressive cough with scant sputum production. I guess the first question um, that we ask for our patients are like, where is this patient coming from? And the reason I bring this up is because we're, we're, we're this is going to help determine the pathogens or the organisms that we want to cover. So is this patient coming from home or are they coming from like a nursing home or ha- were they recently treated in a hospital mm-hmm. um, as well? So if we go down um, the route that he just came from home, the organisms that we want to cover um, would definitely be strep pneumo, um, H-influenza, uh, like and um, maybe some of the, in addition to that, um, possibly staph aureus, but really focusing on the atypical organisms like Legionella pneumonia, mycoplasma, and chlamydia. Um, and then again, those viral respiratory pathogens as well, could be potentially a cause. And I know like a lot of the institutions, uh, specifically our institution, um, we have a greater than 25% resistant macrolide resistance to strep pneumo. So that's when we're going to start to consider um, double coverage for that, or like something with like ceftriaxone plus azithromycin, or maybe a respiratory fluoroquinolone of levofloxacin or moxifloxacin. And the reason we don't Oh yeah,
1: I was going to say. So the greater than twenty five percent macrolide resistance, sometimes in the literature they'll call that drug resistant strep pneumo, and that's that. You can also they also say to in the IDSA guidelines they say, and these are from two thousand seven, and will be updated spring twenty eighteen. So I don't I don't know that this part's going to change that much, but they basically say if patients have like multimorbidity uh or any kind of chronic organ failure long liver kidneys that those patients should not be treated with monotherapy they they are at risk for drug resistance, strep pneumo and 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 the double coverage that you're talking about right
3: absolutely yes thank you um Yes. And another thing that you could consider instead of using um, azithromycin or your macrolide is you could consider using doxycycline. And there's some articles out there and recently published in Clinical Infectious Diseases in 2017, stating that doxycycline also has a decreased risk of um, C. diff, if that's something to consider. Um, And so then with the Respiratory fluoroquinolones, I'm thinking more so levofloxacin or moxifloxacin. The reason we don't typically use ciprofloxacin is because it doesn't have great empiric um, strep pneumo coverage. So we kind of leave that one out. Mm-hmm. I know essentially that this is going to be efficacious. Now, my question is: I'm I'm, there's the efficacy zone, and now it's time to go into the safety zone, um, or what I like to call the end zone. Uh So, the questions that we kind of typically want to ask then is: Does my patient have allergies? And if so, like what are the manifestations? Is it GI upset, or is it really like rash, hives, and an anaphylactic reaction? Um, Are there any wild contraindications to the medications that they're on? Um, And then this is something I'm really Going to be focused on is like drug drug interactions. So, in this particular case, we have our patient um, that is on citalopram, assuming um, after doing a medication reconciliation that the patient is compliant, um, that there are so they're on a lancepine and citalopram. Um, so, if I do use the combination of ceftriaxone plus azithromycin, because um, I, I'm definitely worried about QTC prolongation. And when I think of QTC prolongation in my patients, I'm more so looking at um, the amount of QTC prolonging um, medications that mm-hmm. they're on. So around wintertime, I like to think of like the more the merrier in terms of QTC prolonging <laughs> medications.
1: you mean like if you want to die from torsades, the more the merrier is that is is that what you're getting at?
3: <laughs> oh, in a horrible way. Yes, did not mean by that to come out that way? Absolutely. Um, yes. So that's when we start to consider it. Now, essentially, like alone, if if my patient wasn't on these medications and they were just going to be on azithromycin, I wouldn't typically worry about this um, per se unless they had, you know, a history of like arrhythmias or atrial fibrillation or so forth. So that's something to consider. Um, Another thing to consider also is, you know, this patient's been very sick. They're on a diuretic as well. Um, You know, have they been dehydrated? Something to definitely check for would be like their electrolytes, specifically like their potassium levels and their magnesium levels. And I would monitor um, for hypokalemia and hypomagnesemia if I was worried about that in terms of that. Um, and then what I also want to monitor as well is um, the renal dysfunction um, or renal function mm-hmm. per se. And so um, typically, all of these medications, um, the ceftriaxone, the azithro, um, and the respiratory fluoroquinolones can be dosed. Um, I'll just change the dosing and adjust that for renal dysfunction as well.
1: I wanted to ask you real quick. Let's say that let's say this guy ended up having an infiltrate on chest X-ray, and we thought his, his curb 65 was one or his, his, uh, PSI was like a two and we wanted to send him home. Would, uh, would you consider like a high dose amoxicillin or amoxicillin clavulonic acid as like as part of your, your regimen? Because I have not, I have not done that, but I know it's part of the IDSA guidelines. I just don't see it done often.
3: Um, so I actually have to say I hadn't seen it often as well. Um, in the inpatient setting, but in the ED setting, they frequently prescribe this okay. to my institution. Prior to coming to Kashlekt Memorial, um, they were doing that just because like high dose amoxicillin is pretty cheap, okay, as well for other patients. So they will consider using that or using a uh, macrolide plus um a beta lactam with the high dose amoxicillin over augmentin.
1: Bob, do you have uh, do you have any any thoughts here on the on the choice of choice of agent like the initial choice?
4: Yeah, I try to avoid fluoroquinolones for all the black box warning reasons. Um, for hospitalized patients, I almost always do ceftriaxone and azithromycin mm-hmm. um, uh, as my as my initial uh, antibiotics. But I always get blood cultures. Um, the IDSA recommends sputum cultures. I'm less excited about sputum cultures than the IDSA because the sputum has to come through the mouth, and that really contaminates everything. Um, I wish we had a good way to, to know exactly what the organism was, but we really don't, unless they have a positive blood culture.
1: Right. Yeah. The And how do you feel
2: – oh, sorry, Matt. But
4: uh, in terms of the utility of the
2: gram stains, so I, I've heard – Some clinicians like it, so if there's plenty of whites, then you can feel maybe just a little bit more confident there is uh, a respiratory infection than if there's not. Is that something that you look at?
4: Well, I used to when I was a house officer because we used to have a gram stain lab, and we all had purple fingers. (laughs) Uh, We we had to do our own gram stains, and we'd look at the sputum, and if we saw white cells and— diplococci in there, we'd say, okay, it's pneumococcal pneumonia. Apparently, we weren't very good, and they don't let us do that anymore. <laughs> so I would love to do that, um, and I don't find that the labs at the hospitals that I work at are very good at looking at gram stains. I think in an ideal world, if you had somebody who really knows how to do it, that might be helpful. I think the other thing you can do is take advantage of your understanding of the of the clinical syndrome. If someone comes in and has um, uh, a low bar pneumonia and they had a drenching night sweat and rigors, I'm pretty darn sure that it's uh, that's pneumococcal pneumonia. If they have a bunch of hazy stuff, I'm pretty sure it's an atypical pneumonia. Um, and so I, th- I think that we do ourselves a little bit of a disservice by lumping all of these things together and then uh, not splitting them down according to the clinical syndrome of what's the more likely organism. But I I do try to avoid uh, the quinolones as much as I can.
1: Yeah. Yeah, the black box warning, I'll link to it in the show notes. It was from 2016, and it's all sorts of muscle and tendon injury. Mm -hmm. Uh, Neela, anything else you wanted to comment about that, the the quinolones?
3: No, I was going to say, Dr. Centauri, you're my hero, because I completely agree with you on that. (laughs) And I I have to say, like, I've actually had patients – I've, I've seen many more patients than I feel that are reported that have definitely had those adverse effects. And then, of course, I'm worried about like resistance, resistance, resistance. So if I could use something else like ceftriaxin and azithromycin, for example, that's something that I typically see more used. And I just kind of want to also throw in that you can use doxycycline instead of the azithromycin if you are worried about that QTC prolongation. Um, and then the only other point I wanted to add is, you know, with the pharmacy team, like we just don't end there at the drug-drug interactions. We move on to the counseling with these patients because something that surprised me that I found out, especially working in the emergency department, is when they bring their little um, bag full of medications, a lot of times they'll see antibiotics in there and it's because they stop taking it once they feel a little bit better. So that's something I definitely counsel them that they have to finish um, their antibiotic therapy um, and contact their physicians if they aren't feeling better. And that kind of goes Back to the conversation in terms of antibiotic duration.
1: Yeah, yeah, you're yeah, segueing so, so nicely. we're going to
4: probably have a controversy yeah. here.
3: Okay. Yes, yes, no, no I, I know what you're going to say, and I'm excited about yeah. it. Yeah, Bob, <laughs> Bob, let it rip.
4: <laughs> so, so I've only known this for about a year, uh, but the IDSA says that if the patient is doing well, by the second or third day, they only need five days of antibiotics for community-acquired pneumonia. Yeah, And by doing well, afebrile and clinically stable. Um, We used to give antibiotics for 10 days, Mm. and uh, there's this wonderful uh, article in JAMA Internal Medicine uh, from Spain Uh, from last year where they looked at uh, randomizing people to a strict five days if you're stable versus whatever the doctor wanted to do, and they had… Uh, much better outcomes by only doing five days of antibiotics. And just reminds us that giving antibiotics for a long time is not really good for patients. Uh, right. So uh, trying to figure out the right duration is really important. And I love the idea that if the patient's stable, five days is enough.
1: Yeah, Yeah, there's when you read about pneumonia, they they really talk about if you you should really see a great response within the first like forty eight to seventy two hours. You know that's an that's a nice predictor that this person's doing well. And if and then the IDSA table ten in the two thousand seven IDSA guidelines has these clinical uh, stability markers. And like you said, it's you know are they afebrile? They're not tachycardic. Their their respiratory rates not elevated. They're not hypotensive. They're they're having PO intake, mental status is good like all those things are gonna point to the, that you can stop at five days if they got if they got better rapidly and and uh, and they're stable which is great yeah, and,
4: I, and I think you can do that with with the outpatients uh, also. Um, I, I know some hospitals have a lot of uh, uh, pneumonia resistance, but still this is one time where a Z packc makes sense. Mm-hmm. Right, uh, because you can give it for five days. It should cover most pneumococcal pneumonia, and just as long as you you keep in touch with the patient who is at low risk anyway. If they're not getting better, then you then you could add doxy, or you could or you could uh, switch to doxy, or, or add amoxicillin uh, for that acute episode. But if and- they don't, if they have a relapse, it's probably not community acquired pneumonia.
3: I agree. I was going to say that this was probably one of my most favorite articles. It's definitely in the top 15. And um, in terms of, I felt that the study, which I didn't even realize because I forgot about it since the guidelines were, um, the IDSA guidelines were, in were written two or they came out in 2007, is that this study kind of showed that, you know, the information presented here isn't guideline changing, it's guideline affirming. So it makes me feel b- better in terms of like treatment duration. Right, I
4: I, I I love the article because it, it was really good for patients. Mm-hmm.
3: Can
1: we talk about how HCAP is no longer a thing? <laughs> <Does> anyone- <laughs> you
4: know, I just read that HCAP is no longer a thing. <laughs> mm. so, yeah, but 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 uh, when I was reading about it, we have to know about HAP. Right, HAP is hospital acquired pneumonia as opposed to healthcare associated pneumonia. And that's someone who develops pneumonia two or three days into their hospitalization. That has a totally different set of bugs that you have to worry about, and so therefore you start different antibiotics. That's not what we're planning to talk about today. But if they don't come in with pneumonia and they develop pneumonia in the hospital, don't treat them the way we've been talking about.
1: That's a great point. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yes. And yeah, so HCAP was, and the reason that they are now encouraging us to kind of move away from that term, and I think it was the hospital acquired pneumonia guidelines by IDSA. They said, you know, stop calling things mm-hmm. HCAP. So what they basically recommend is you use the community acquired pneumonia guidelines and then you look at an individual patient's risk factors for drug resistant organisms. So we, we already s- talked about drug resistant strep pneumo. The other two main ones that we have to think about are pseudomonas and MRSA. And mm. I, I, I think I've seen a couple lists that vary slightly, but I, what, I'll I'll tell you what I think makes sense to me for so for Pseudomonas, if someone has structural lung disease like bronchiectasis, that's a risk factor for pseudomonas. I think we all agree that makes sense. Right. You could cover that person for pseudomonas. If someone has COPD or they're smoking and they are frequently on steroids and exposed to antibiotics, that's a pseudomonas risk factor. And uh, the other the other one is if they have a compatible gram stain, you know, if they have lots of gram negative rods, <laughs> then you might you might think about it. And then for van- uh for MRSA, vancomycin for MRSA. Uh, if you so if you see gram positive cocci and clusters on the gram stain, you should cover MRSA. <laughs> but really, uh, the, the groups you should think about this are if end stage renal disease with pneumonia, if they're IV drug users, or if they just got over the flu, and then. The other main one is if someone has necrotizing or cavitary pneumonia which is relatively rare you should think about MRSA community acquired MRSA and cover them for that
0: So does this mean I want to see less vancomycin? You so, should so good
3: you, you should Yeah
4: you should um, never use that combination. <laughs> <laughs>
3: um, and then the only thing that I wanted to add is that, um, especially in the emergency department, we'll take the MRSA surveillance um, cultures or MRSA swabs, and they're they're pretty sensitive. So I feel like if it's negative a lot of times, then it's pretty predictive that the patient is not growing MRSA, and then you can peel off that vancomycin very quickly.
1: Yeah. And that is backed up in the literature, so we can link to an article that kind of upholds that practice. Which I was what do you happy think
0: about. Linazolid instead of vancomycin. I just want to kind of throw that in there.
3: Um, so with linazolid, it's nice because it is an oral, oral formulation. But I am very nervous about resistance Mm -hmm. um and so i'm worried about vre for example and in this situation with this specific patient being on an ssri i'm worried about uh serotonin syndrome potentially happening with the linazolid and um citalopram
0: right i guess i was asking more in general instead and less with this patient
1: but right I think the cost the cost is less of an issue now with linazolid, right? It's it's generic now, but it's it's still just the all the other things you mentioned is why we don't see it as often.
0: Yeah, I, I think that, of course there's concern about uh, bone marrow suppression, but that's generally not seen until about three weeks into therapy, and I don't know who's going to be on linazolid for three weeks. <laughs>
1: but I really did want to just at least quickly talk about the steroid issue. So for for patients with community-acquired pneumonia, there's been a couple articles and reviews in the past few years about using steroids. And kind of the idea there is that there's this critical illness-related corticosteroid insufficiency or a relative adrenal insufficiency that can occur in like really severe illness. So people thought giving steroids for pneumonia might work. And how does that pan out actually in the literature?
3: So um, in their liter- literature, there's been some conflicting data, but recently like there's been two studies that have shown benefit, although the study size was quite small. Um, and they utilize methylprednisolone 0.5 mix per kg per dose every 12 hours for five days. And they also, another study looked at prednisone 50 milligrams daily for five days, and they showed Basically, like a shorter duration of treatment in terms of community acquired pneumonia. So, um, in terms of like clinical practice, again, this is more for like your severe type of community acquired pneumonia. Um, What I found, um, and I've actually uh, spoken to a couple of physicians, that they'll more so utilize it for patients that are also having like an asthma exacerbation or a COPD exacerbation secondary to um, pneumonia, and they feel like the literature is not yet there for them to practice it yet. But that's what my small N of physicians that I've asked about and also seen at our institution.
1: And in the articles, there was one in the annals f- from 2015, it was a meta-analysis, and then there was another systematic review and meta-analysis in PLOS One in 2016, which I'll link to. And the, the they both included a bunch of studies, but a lot of the studies had 30 to 60 patients in them, and... Yeah, the confidence intervals are very wide, but when they put them right. all to, when they put them all together, they're like, yeah, maybe it it decreases hospital stay by a day, might might decrease the need for mechanical ventilation. Right. Um, the plus one study showed possible uh, decrease in mortality, but again, the confidence intervals are wide, so I think the jury's definitely still out on that. Like you're saying.
3: But stay tuned because who knows what's going to happen in <laughs> the summer of 2018.
1: You seem so, yeah, I, I, I'm i interested to see what these new IDSA guidelines, I think they might include, they probably will include something about the steroids and well, I think they, I think procalcitonin. They should. Yeah, I, I think some of these yeah. things we brought up, like procalcitonin, steroids, uh, there's some some people are looking at CRP uh, levels and, and whether that predicts who might respond to steroids. So there's a lot out there.
2: I would like a to choice. see the exact same guidelines. It just in Comic Sans font. Like, I would look like that for the Beauty <laughs> big update. Just eleven years later, we can.
0: <laughs> we should do that and re, and uh, release it as a uh, a spoof. <laughs>
1: that that actually might be a good like Gomer blog headline, Paul. It's like <laughs> IDSA, IDSA updates guidelines with Comic Sans font.
0: Yeah, the yeah. the last guideline update was two thousand five and two thousand seven. It's yeah. just this boggles my mind. Guidelines are updated literally, it seems like biannually now. <laughs> yeah. Well We I, got blood pressure guideline updates, seems like every three months. I can't take anymore.
2: <laughs>
3: <laughs> I'm a little hypertensive thinking about that. Yeah.
2: <laughs> well, according to new guidelines, we all are. And Yeah, <laughs> yeah w-
0: one of these days we're gonna talk about it on air. I just don't know which day. I don't I don't know if we should wait for the next guideline update.
1: Well I, I do want to talk about, let's say we we have our, we kind of talked, we did not talk that much about the inpatient, like the really sick patients that need, that need antibiotic coverage, Neela. How would that differ from what we talked about for more of our sort of like outpatient with comorbidities or just our run of the mill inpatient?
3: Um, so in terms of like our non-ICU inpatients, um, definitely uh, we could consider like a respiratory fluoroquinolone um, and then your macrolide plus beta-lactam, as we discussed, and then for if we're worried about the pseudomonal coverage, then that's when I would consider like a beta-lactam plus azithromycin or respiratory fluoroquinolone. Um, you could use ace if your patient is um, allergic to penicillin plus that respiratory fluoroquinolone. Um, and then you could consider um, in some patients... Um, if you're truly, truly worried about more of pseudomonas, uh, beta-lactam plus cipro or levo, um, or using beta-lactam plus azithromycin plus an aminoglycoside.
1: And when you're saying beta-lactam in this sense, are you talking about an anti-pseudomonal one? Correct. Okay. Yes. So that would be piptazo cefepime would be the two most common that, we're, that we would be reaching for, I guess? Correct. So that's most of that's most of the antibiotic stuff. I I don't think we really need to get too much into uh, into the like the real severe pneumonia in the ICU because that's not really what this this show's about. Um, any other points that uh, Bob that you wanted to bring up in regards to antibiotics?
4: No, I think that that we've really covered uh, the landscape. Um, be sure that just always be skeptical. And second-guess yourself, is this really community-acquired pneumonia? The other thing that I teach all the time is, uh, as we said, the patient should be getting better with appropriate antibiotics uh, over 48 to 72 hours. If they're not, take a timeout and say, okay, it's something else. We don't know what it is. Let's think about what it could be. Because we really make an error if we keep on going down that path, assuming that we know what we're doing and the patient's not acting right.
1: Well, thank you, and Bob. We want we we had talked about this uh, ahead of time. Uh, Stuart, Paul, and I, and uh, and uh, Neil. This is probably the first you're hearing this, but we uh, we decided that we needed a chair of internal medicine at Cashlac Memorial Hospital, and we couldn't think of a better person than Doctor Robert Centaur. So, if if you would be interested, we would love to offer you the job on air. <laughs>
4: As long as there's uh, no financial remuneration, because I because uh, I can you because I don't want to have any no. conflicts of interest in case I have to review articles or anything. I don't want to put down that, that cash. Like giving me a bunch of cash, <laughs> if anything, this is going to cost you money, Bob. I wouldn't worry about it.
0: Don't worry, it's not a
1: misnomer. So if we give you a cash lag T-shirt, you know, I mean, yeah, I do
4: get a cash lag T-shirt, uh, Gentlemen and lady. Uh, this is uh, an incredible honor. I know that it was a highly sought-after job. I know <laughs> that you had thousands of applicants, uh, and uh, I have no idea, but um, I know that we're going to have a coronary ICU, we're going to have a respiratory ICU, we're going to have a surgical ICU, but this is going to be the first hospital that has a sore throat ICU.
1: <laughs>
0: okay. It's the only ICU we have.
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And uh, I guess your your only duties are to uh, appear on the show from time to time if you if you are willing to and uh, and feel free to suggest topics or guests uh, that you think that you think would be great to share with the audience which you've already been doing so thank you
4: I'll be delighted thanks so much.
1: All right,
3: congratulations.
4: <laughs> Jeez, can I put this on my CV? Yeah, I, I,
1: I hope so. Did you Did you see we uh, press release the at Kidney Boy as chief of nephrology on Twitter? Uh, <laughs> I, I retweeted it. <laughs> okay, so we'll my my wife will write you up a nice press release yourself. So. I'm excited to put that out there. She's like, "Are you? Should I write this as a fake hospital?" I'm like, "No, no, don't write that it's a fake hospital. People don't ever do that. People will figure that out when they Google search it, and all they get is our shows." (laughs) 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 Yeah. All right, Bob. Thank you so much for your time. Good luck at uh, Orange. What is it? Orange Fitness. Orange Theory Fitness. Orange Theory Fitness tomorrow morning.
4: Bright and early, and then go meet my team because I start on service tomorrow morning for the next thirty-one days.
1: Oh my gosh! Wow!
4: Gosh! At at the at the cash like BA in an undetermined city.
1: (laughs) Oh my gosh, Bob! (laughs) Yeah, that's it. That's the way to do it. I will report
4: back. (laughs) Okay. Yeah. Good night, all. Good Good night.
1: Good night. This has been another episode of The Curbsiders. Oh, hi, Matt. Hi, Stuart. That, uh, hi. This is this is the end of the show. Uh, you don't interrupt oh. me here.
0: <laughs> I'm sorry. I forgot to interrupt you in the beginning.
1: This has been another episode of The Curbsiders, bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole. Yummy. You can find show notes along with links to any articles, books, websites, or apps mentioned on the show at thecurbsiders.com forward slash podcast. And please sign up to receive our weekly mailing list where you you will get our expertly done show notes. That is at thecurbsiders.com forward slash knowledge food. We'd like you to uh, subscribe, rate, and review the show on iTunes, which really helps people find the show. And uh, send us an email to thecurbsiders at gmail.com. You can recommend a future topic or tell us what you love or hate about the show. And please follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and on Twitter. How many
0: followers do we have on Instagram?
1: At the curious. curbsiders, uh, a couple hundred, I guess. We're growing. We just seriously, yeah. Oh,
0: no, I don't use Instagram. Why? so Why?
1: I have no clue. Uh, we uh, we have a correspondent who Beth Garbatelli, and oh, she right. is uh, doing a great job. Okay. Yeah. Excellent. How's
2: the Snapchat thing going? Is that the whole thing?
1: <laughs> Which one?
2: Snapchat. Oh, Snapchat, yeah.
1: I don't know if I'm going to leave this in or not, but, uh... <laughs>
2: <laughs> no, it's all gold.
0: <laughs> uh, We'd have to have, like, a 15-year-old uh, correspondent for Snapchat.
1: You can check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and on Twitter, at The Curbsiders. Until next time, I've been Dr. Matthew Frank Watto.
0: And I'm Dr. Stuart Kent Brigham. And good night.
3: Hi, I'm Neela Pajanas. Good night.
0: Oh, hey, Neela.
2: Hi. What about Vine? Is Vine still a thing? <laughs> <laughs> and I it's remain Paul up. Nelson Williams good night oh Hi Paul
3: I actually had a dream of seeing Asta La Vista baby
2: <laughs> <laughs>
3: as my sign up
2: I guarantee that it will now be included in the recording.
3: <laughs>
1: I think I'm going to have to drop Stewart from the call again. Any objections yeah. from anyone?
4: No, I feel like I'm witness to a murder or something. <laughs> <Why not? laughs> this is be
1: He's gone. Okay.